Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach. Have you ever wondered how well-suited you are for ethical non-monogamy? Well, you can find out by taking my quiz. And you can find the quiz right on the homepage of my website, sumatisparks.com. And when you request the quiz, you'll be automatically added to my mailing list, and you'll be the first to learn about my virtual events and to receive occasional helpful tidbits of advice and information to add more love, passion, and joy into your life. So today, I'm super excited to have as my guest, Brett Chamberlain. Brett is a social impact organizer with over a decade of movement building experience. In addition to serving as executive director of OPEN, Brett sits on the board of directors of Consensuality, Inc., a consent education nonprofit best known for operating the infamous Orgy Dome at Burning Man. And prior to stepping into the non-monogamy movement, Brett worked in the environmental movement and has been featured in CNN, the New York, the New York Times, and beyond. Welcome to the show, Brett. Thank you so much for having me, Sumati. It's a pleasure to be here to speak with you and with your listeners. Yeah. I, when I heard about your organization um, called OPEN, I was just in love with the acronym. It was like so obvious. So for those that are just hearing about it for the first time, um, Brett is the executive director of a new organization called OPEN, which stands for Organization for Polyamory and Ethical Non-Monogamy. And it was like, wow, how come nobody else came up with that acronym in the past? It's so obvious. So <laughs> congratulations on such an awesome name. And I want to hear all about the organization. But first, I want to learn more about you and how you grew up to be the executive director of an organization about open relationships. So tell me a little bit about your story. Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to tell you more about my journey here. So I've been doing organizing and activism in one form or another for really my whole life. Um, when I was probably in middle school, my parents brought me to a protest against the Iraq war, which dates mm. me a little bit. And I just remember being just captivated by the energy of that space. Um, as a young person, like you know, well before I started attending music festivals, the, the sort of constructive energy, the signs, the, the righteous anger present there was just really captivating. So I started doing uh, anti-war organizing in my home state of New Hampshire. And then when I went to college in New York City, um, my time there overlapped with Occupy Wall Street. So I had the chance to be um, at the front lines of that movement, both in New York City and, and again in my home state of New Hampshire. Um, and it was after I graduated that I really locked my, myself into the environmental movement. Um, prior to that, I had been really looking for the place where I could make the most difference, uh, contribute to what I saw as the most urgent issues in the world. And the environmental crisis that we face certainly invites you know, all hands on deck. Um, so I launched my first nonprofit in 2013, supporting student-led efforts to develop zero-waste programs on college campuses. Um, and then in 2016, I moved to the Bay Area to continue my work in the environmental movement. I worked at an organization called the Story of Stuff Project, which works on issues of consumerism and waste. And during my time there, we really focused on plastic pollution. So I was involved in producing a documentary, The Story of Plastic. And um, we're really feeling you know, excited and motivated about that work. But I started to feel like I was leading this double life because after moving to California in 2016, I started to become really integrated in the Bay Area polyamory and the sex positive scene. And it came to be that really much of my personal growth, my, my community, and where I was pointing so much of my creative energy outside of working hours was really in that space, in that sector. 
And as I was navigating these areas um, and spending more and more time within these communities, I was having, of course, conversations about the politics of it, as, as I want to do, and was really startled to discover that, you know, first of all, not only is this, this space much larger than I think most people account for, we're talking about millions mm-hmm. of American adults practicing some form of non-monogamy, but people were still choosing to hide their identity because of the stigma or discrimination that they faced. And, and even in progressive areas like the Bay Area, I had friends that could be open about the fact that they had a husband but had to hide the fact that they also had a boyfriend because mm-hmm. they were afraid of losing their job. And so we finally decided that there was a real opportunity to uh, found a new organization just to bring some additional movement building capacity to this space to really contribute to the broader project of non-monogamy awareness and acceptance and ultimately political protections. And that's what ultimately led to me stepping out of my career in the environmental sector at the end of 2021 and beginning to build uh, open at the beginning of this year, 2022. And then we launched publicly in April. I've rolled out some of our initial campaigns since then. And uh, that is how I ended up sort of pivoting my whole career from the environmental space into what I call sex politics. Wow, that's so awesome. Thank you for that story. I'm really glad that you're doing this because I remember I marched in the San Francisco Pride Parade Gosh, it was probably close to 20 years ago now, and we were right behind the bisexual group. <laughs> and this was before we were even widely using the word queer. And it was just a small coalition of polyamorous people, and we had a little banner, and people were clapping as we went by, and it felt so good to have, you know. And there was some, we had some kind of political T-shirts. I forgot what they said. I think I still have mine somewhere. But then it just dropped. And I never really heard anything about it till now. Um, so I can't remember what that organization was, but it, it was just a little blip in time. And, and I'm just so glad that you're gain, it's gaining momentum again because of, like you said, like normalizing this love style. It's so important for us to be able to just be who we are and live our lives without persecution. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I will say, you know, Op- Open is just one of a number of organizations that are really working to advance efforts in the space. So I just want to make sure that I'm not, you know, centering us too much in the story. Right. I'm really proud to be able to, to offer something new here and just help bring a bit more energy and to be able to point my own attention and efforts towards this space. Because as you know, I think this has been a, a movement, a, a lifestyle that has been percolating for a while and mm-hmm. just kind of slowly building steam. I think particularly in the last couple of years, mm-hmm. we've really seen this explosion in interest. And it may be that that's just sort of a, a critical mass moment and it would have happened otherwise. Um, but I also think that there's a certain theory, a certain thinking that the um, pandemic has really found people yearning for connection. Um, right. And it's also been one of those like disruptive world events that's kind of shaken our, our sense of, um, of narrative in the world, of, of mm-hmm. kind of the, the sense of things. And that obviously has, has catastrophic implications, but it also is an opportunity for folks to sort of rebuild new value systems um, that are more aligned with the sort of authentic types of connections that I think human beings so deeply desire and crave. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, and I agree that it has been building momentum recently. And like when you hear about celebrities that are openly polyamorous, and then there's that new show that everybody's raving about, How to Build a Sex Room. Have you seen that yet? I have to say I have not. Um, can, can you recommend it? <laughs> oh yeah, there's. I think it's the third and fourth episode where they um, this this woman. She's a kind of a dowdy middle-aged woman who's really non-threatening, um, 
who, who just really normalizes all kinds of sex and kink and stuff and helps people create these really sexy rooms in their house. And everybody was monogamous. And then finally, I'm like, when are they going to have a polyamorous people on here? And then this whole, poly, she calls it the family, the polyamorous family of seven people. So she, and they were all like really comfortable talking about their sexuality, whereas the other people were a little more shy. And so she was like, this is great. I get to build a sex room for seven people. <laughs> And so she made like a beautiful room for them. So yeah, it's super awesome. I really enjoyed watching that. <laughs> that so, is yeah, great. And, and it sort of raises a point too. Go ahead. It, it, it sort of raises the, the, the point too. And you know, it's sort of the king practitioner that we have these, these three, you know, distinct, but, but deeply intersecting and overlapping movements of queer mm-hmm. identities, polyamorous folks and kinky folks. But exactly. what's, you know, consistent between all of those movements. And, and to be clear, not all polyamorous people are kinky, not all kinky mm-hmm. people are queer, not all queer people mm-hmm. are polyamorous, so on and so forth. But I think the the overlaps there are quite larger than any mm-hmm. other, like random sample of the population. And right. the root of all these movements is the idea that consenting adults should be free to pursue whatever type of sexual play or romantic relationships they choose with other consenting adults free of stigma and discrimination. And so the way that all three of the movements are really rising together, I think is exciting. And I think that it speaks to the broader project of, um, you know, bodily autonomy, of political liberation, and ultimately, and this is my sort of grander political vision towards a, a more open and loving world um, that really mm-hmm. prioritizes authentic human connection and sort of human, human relationships over, you know, say consumption or power. Right. And so here's this movement gaining steam alongside this conservative movement that's trying to dial back all this stuff, all the progress that we've made. Like, what are your thoughts about these kind of diametrically opposed movements going on? Yeah, it's it's a great point because it is really important that we recognize the context within this organizing is happening because we are seeing a, a very startling sort of swing of the political pendulum Although I shouldn't use that metaphor because I actually don't like it. It's a little too like deterministic, right? Like you can't stop a pendulum, pendulum swing. That's what they do. But I don't think that we need to assume that every progressive phase is going to be met with a reactionary phase. But regardless, you know, that's the position we're in now where we have this very, very emboldened reactionary right that is, you know, very, they are, they are coming for, for hard fought rights. They are you know, actively trying to erase, attack, marginalize, uh, ultimately criminalize, um, you know, gay folks, trans folks, and so on. And um, we need to meet the moment. We, we really need to step up and, and be organizing um, and ensure that we're not backsliding. Because um, I mm-hmm. think that there is a, a very real risk that we stand to lose some of the rights and protections that we've gained over the last few decades. Right, exactly. I mean, they're even coming for birth control, even among like straight cis married couples, you know, they're just really going for it. So I'm hoping that, yeah, this will create enough uh, motivation for people to, to organize. And I love that you're, that, that open is happening at this time. And I've been spreading the word about it. Um, so tell us more about open's theory of change. Like what, what is your strategic organizing approach and like, what are you hoping to achieve Sure. So there are three pillars to open strategy. And the, the first is, is awareness and acceptance. So many people don't even know that polyamory is something that they can do, right? We live in a society that sort of prescribes monogamy to everyone as, as the default and, 
uh, the, the really only accessible or acceptable relationship status. So just making people aware that there are other ways that they can structure their relationships and then advancing cultural acceptance so that if people do choose to pursue non-monogamous relationships, they don't stand to be you know, shamed or stigmatized or excluded from social settings and so on. So awareness and acceptance is the first part of the pillar, the strategy. The second is what we call the practice of non-monogamy. This means, you know, how easy is it for you to find non-monogamous community where, where you live? Are there events that you can attend? How easy is it for you to access professional providers like therapists that accept and affirm your identity? Um, how easy is it for you to find resources that help you navigate the types of, you know, relationship hurdles that come up in any relationship? Um, mm -hmm. How easy is it for you to find, you know, people to connect with, uh, community, mm -hmm. in-person events, and so on? Um, so the hope is that by doing that, we can improve people's experiences in non-monogamy, improve their outcomes. And by doing that, we create more space, more capacity for the third pillar of our strategy, and that is power. So what this mm -hmm. means is meaningfully organizing this really vast network of communities and individuals uh, that, that constitute the non-monogamous sector um, around an, a shared socio-political vision for, for our future. Um, that we should fight for and articulate the demand that uh, we should be free from stigma and discrimination. Um, so organizing politically for our own rights and protections is, is certainly part of the strategy, but also part of the political strategy is developing the coordination apparatus, the digital campaigning infrastructure, and so on, so that we can then mobilize the non-monogamous population as an identity group, as a constituency, to organize and fight not only for our own rights and protections, but also for some of those other issues we talked about, right? For reproductive justice, for sex worker rights, for LGBTQIA protections, and so on. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, the awareness, perception of non-monogamy, the practice of non-monogamy, and ultimately the power of non-monogamy are the three pillars of our strategy and our theory of change. Mm -hmm. I love that, especially the, the last part, mobilizing as an identity group. And you really do have to have the acceptance First, because if people aren't out, then they're not going to want to identify as that group. So you, you really can't have any power if you're in the closet. So that's really cool. Um, and what, uh, what made you decide to go after Facebook or Meta for your first – well, tell people about that because we haven't mentioned that yet. Like what your kind of one of your first things was, was um, the relationship status on Facebook and why did you choose that? Yeah, so um, we asked Facebook um, and via its parent company, Meta, to allow users to add multiple relationship statuses to their profile. So right now, you can go on your Facebook, you can add a relationship status, you can say, you know, I, I'm married, and you can tag your partner, but it is one and done. There is also an open relationship status, but as we know, open relationships are one form of non-monogamy, but it is just one, one, one category within that broader umbrella uh, term of non-monogamy. Um, and, you know, this demonstrates or it's an example of the sort of marginalization of non-monogamous communities and the, um, the prescribed monogamy of our society at large, wherein you know, one relationship is, is all well and good um, and there are slight concessions for you know, open relationships. But ultimately, if you have, you know, a husband and a boyfriend and you want to add both of those to your profile, um, you're not able to do so. Uh, and again, this is an example of how non-monogamous relationships are treated as less worthy, less valid, less, mm -hmm. less worthy of recognition. 
And so this is exactly the type of intervention that is so necessary under our awareness and acceptance strategy. And Facebook was, of course, a great target for that for a number of reasons. First and foremost, Facebook is, you know, kind of the social, the digital social infrastructure or is positioning itself as such for huge portions of the world, right? With 3 billion daily active users, you've got parts of the world where Facebook really is the whole internet. Um, and then second is that Meta as a company and Facebook as a product really talk a lot about their emphasis on connection, on authentic identity. They really want people to use their platform to form human relationships. So it seems really at odds with those values that there's types of relationships that are prioritized by millions of, of users, tens of millions worldwide, certainly, that are just completely um, not, not welcome or not, not supported by the platform. So we've delivered that letter together with a coalition of awesome co-signers, variety of other groups from across the non-monogamy and sexual freedom spaces. Um, and they did, uh, Facebook did curse, give a cursory response uh, in a New York Times article covering that campaign where they basically said, oh, we'll look into it, but you know, in the meantime, you can say open relationship. So we're continuing to circulate a petition that folks can access on our website, open-love.org, and um, are continuing to try and pressure Facebook to um, stop erasing non-monogamous relationships and allow folks to really show up as their full self and celebrate all the connections that matter to them on their profile. Awesome, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so whenever I've seen any kind of mainstream thing, like in the New York Times or whatever, about polyamory or open relationships, um, I noticed the comments are just so full of vitriol and imposed morality and just toxic monogamy that, you know, this is the only way and anything else is just horrible and bad. So it's such a huge, like, percentage, you know. Most of the comments in the mainstream are like that. And even, like, when that – the slap, you know, when uh, Will Smith slapped uh, Chris Rock at the Academy Awards, um, mm-hmm. people were commenting about their open relationship as if that had anything to do with it. Like, oh, he had to slap him because his wife embarrassed him by having another lover. I mean, it was just like, how did you leave that in there? Mm-hmm. So, like, there's just so much ignorance about it. Like, how on earth do you feel like there's a chance to reverse that tide? You know, it's, it's, it's a long game, right? Like mm-hmm. cultural change is, is a long-term project and it's mm-hmm. squishy. Um, I think that sort of normalizing it is really key, right? Like helping people understand non-monogamy is not about, you know, it's not about wild sex parties. It's not about coming for your marriage. Um, it's mm-hmm. just about allowing people to freely create relationships without the constraint of, the, of you know, just one romantic partner. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, naturally, understandably, like people are um, – you know, will have certain reactions if they have misconceptions or if they're just not aware of it or exposed to, you know, kind of normal non-monogamous practitioners. Um, and so I think that with time, as we see, you know, more authentic coverage in the media, as we see more people being able to you know, openly express their non-monogamous identities, I think that more and more people will come to see that, you know, it's, it's about having another extra partner to, sorry, not extra partner, it's, it's about, you know, picking up, splitting who's going to pick up the kids from, um, you know, soccer practice mm-hmm. as much as it is about, you know, wild sex parties, uh, mm-hmm. more so, frankly. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, you know, my hope is that over time, kind of people will sort of, I think, stop feeling quite the degree of apprehension, sort of the threat to, you know, accepted norms of, of relating and 
um, that non-monogamy will come to be seen, you know, just as a another style of relationships. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah, I remember when um, Kamala Devi's show, Polyamory Married and Dating, was on Showtime, I think it was, and they had a, a triad couple, uh, a storyline about this triad couple as well as her own polygool. And the triad couple was more what we call polyfidelitous, where they were closed. They weren't looking to date anyone else. And I feel like that, that might be a little less threatening to people to see that. But fast forward now, however, 10 years later, and we have this show, How to Build a Sex Room, and you've got this poly family of seven who are into kink, and some of them are into pretty edgy kink stuff. And part of me was like, oh, I'm worried that they're portraying polyamorous people as, you know, that they like golden showers and all this stuff, <laughs> you know, like giving people the wrong idea that everyone's like that. But, um, but on the other hand, the normalization of it was really amazing. And I started feeling like, wow, they should have a show just for this polyamorous group. That could be a whole show, not just one episode. <laughs> really interesting. I'd watch that. People. <laughs> yeah, totally. So yeah, it does seem like slowly it's becoming more normal and to have this Kind of this, like, what, what was her name? Was it Dr. Ruth was, like, the first kind of, was that her name? She was, like, a sex teacher back in the day. I'm older than you, yeah, so you may yeah, know. Yeah, <laughs> Dr. Ruth Westheimer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she was, like, a little old lady. And so she was, like, really safe to be talking about sex. And that's kind of how the woman is that stars in this show. She's in her late 50s, and she's a little chunky and has short gray hair. And so she's just, like, super safe to... um be talking about this stuff with and it, it just makes it really fun and easy for everybody so I like how it has a, a normal like it's incredible normalization of it in that show and that's what we need to see more of and I don't know I just it's hard to read any kind of comments on social media because they're always going to be nasty people are like you know road rage on there they'll just say whatever they want um, but I know that more and more people are understanding that it's available um, to them. And that's how it was for me when I first heard about polyamory. I was like, oh, this is a thing? Okay, I don't have to cheat anymore, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. It's interesting that you mentioned cheating, too, because I think one one thing that we see quite often that, like, get, always makes me chuckle a little bit is that there are folks out there that, like, are more okay with cheating than they are with polyamory because, as the saying goes, like, at least they tried monogamy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's a it's a funny sort of, like, expression of our purity culture that has certain prescriptions and, you know, some things are okay, you know, as long as they fit in within the bounds of the the kind of paradigm at the time. Um, And then other things that are like outside of that are are immediately and inherently bad. And I think that's just the project of like social progress, right? And, you know, this is where to to use the perhaps overused quote that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Um, That being by Dr. Martin Luther King, you know, this is one of those spaces where like, I think broadly that is, is largely quite true, right? Where, you know, my, my grandmother grew up in a time where there were anti-miscegenation laws on the books and you couldn't have a mixed race couple. And then mm-hmm. my parents grew up in a time where there were still anti-sodomy laws on the books mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and uh, you, you couldn't have a same-sex couple. And I think that now we're coming during a time where, um, you know, couples were, were two by default and we're starting to see that, that you know, open up and expand more. Uh, you know, and I think right. the sort of normalization of, of king, king and king acceptance is frankly also part of that, um, that right. sexuality and, and relationships are both the means in which people really should have full autonomy over their bodies um, you mm-hmm. know, as with, within the, the bounds of consenting adults, of course. Right. 
Um, so you said earlier, like you want to spread more love in the world or create a better world through this work. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. So we live in a world right now that I think wants, and this is, by the way, I'm going to put on my like political radical hat here a little bit. So forgive Please me do. if I'm like, uh, <laughs> good, good. Thank you for indulging me. <laughs> so you know, I, I think we live in a world right now that really wants people sort of divided, atomized, right? An individual, you know, two-parent households, because then every household needs to buy a vacuum cleaner, mm-hmm. and it doesn't want people deriving our, our sense of satisfaction or like our value in life from our relationships or from our accomplishments or from our growth. It wants us deriving them from the brands that we associate with, from the consumer objects that we purchase. Right. Um, right. And of course, that has had disastrous implications for our you know, global culture, right? It's what mm-hmm. brought us to the brink of an ecological crisis that threatens to, I mean, is, is a is potentially civilization-ending crisis, if you're reading the IPCC right. report. I don't think that that's too alarmist to state now, because that's what the scientists are telling us. Right. Um, and it's created all, all sorts of issues, right, from, like, hierarchical societies, where people are obsessed with wealth extraction, to, like, the glorification of wealth and power. Um, and then monogamy, I think, is, is one portion of, is one aspect of how that, that social condition is, is, is preserved. Um, it's, you know, in, it enforces the patriarchy, it enforces, you know, social atomization. And so I think that you know, this is not to say that non-monogamy is like the cure for all that it kills us, but I think it is part of the recalibration of our society and of our values away from consumption and towards connection, away from hyper-individualization and towards um, community-oriented social systems. And so my hope is that um, this, this is part of, that, part of that grand project of bringing us towards a, a more just and joyous future um, where folks can really choose to relate authentically and aren't kind of caught in this, this rat race of just trying to get the next, you know, the, the biggest TV or the, the next iPhone, um, but instead can really be investing their, their time and their attention and their energy in, in their own growth, in their relationships with others, the relationship with self, the relationship with the planet. Um, and, and so I really do think that even outside of people that are practicing non-monogamy, the way that these values can saturate into the broader culture, my hope is that it's, it's part of that broader social transformation, part of the broader project of human liberation. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. I think the whole nuclear family model was just a way to control women so that, uh, you know, men could feel like they were the king of the hill. <laughs> And so it was a real uh, feminine domination kind of strategy, and that's what they're trying to get back to. Um, but I think for all of these these ills that are happening in society, community is kind of our saving grace. Like if we can really form communities where we share things, we have each other's backs, we grow our own food, we can just step outside that whole model and, you know, hit them where it hurts in their pocketbooks, right? <laughs> Exactly, right. And that experience of community is one of the things, as, as I mentioned, I was telling my story, one of the things that really just proved so personally transformative, where you know, prior I had had certainly social networks and, and, and a loving, you know, home family system, um, but had always sort of been seeking that, like, deeply values-aligned community um, that I think, you know, some people get it from a sports team, some people get it from a church, and I just hadn't found that until I sort of found my way into the Bay Area poly and sex-positive culture. And it was here that, like, you know, I, I had appendicitis. I was recovering in the hospital and people were coming by and bringing food. Like we look out for one another. It's, you know, knowing that there's somebody that you can turn to that has a kind of shared set of values and a similar vocabulary is instrumental. 
and beyond that social support um, and the way that that can empower you know growth and and you know provide support when we're going through difficult times there's even material support that comes with that right like i see folks in my community you know looking out for one another with regard to housing or helping folks find jobs or chipping into one another's gofundme when you know they need to cover expenses for an unexpected medical procedure um and I think it's a really wonderful thing. There's, there's even ecological benefits, right? Like if you're living in a multifamily household or a community, like, as I say, not everybody needs to buy a weed whacker or, or a vacuum cleaner. Like you can mm-hmm. share things a little bit more collectively. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, we evolved as a species in, in community, um, in small right. social networks. This highly atomized society that we live in now is, you know, it's very unusual in a historical sense. And I think that it's having right. catastrophic implications for both our social fabric, right? The way that we like understand other people that we may even disagree with to still be you know, people and, and neighbors. Um, and, you know, for our mental and emotional health, right? People feel alone and, and lonely and scared in the face of like a lot of challenging um, things that we face as a, as a civilization. And I think right, community that, is just a, a huge part of that medicine. Totally. And the pandemic really um, showed us how isolated we were and, people that didn't have a monogamous partner that they lived with were kind of, and I was at that time, I had ended a relationship right before the pandemic started and I was traveling around North America speaking at polyamory conferences. So I didn't even have kind of like a main home at that time. (laughs) And so all of my sweeties were like in different locations, different states. And so I felt like I was playing musical chairs and like the chair got pulled out from under me. And I was just like, Mm -hmm. wait a minute, I had such an abundance of lovers and friends all over the country. And all of a sudden I'm sitting in my apartment all alone with nobody. Like what happened? (laughs) So, Yeah, really that whole model of just having separate houses for everybody cannot be so good when you have a pandemic or something like that. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, exactly. I think that's why I've seen, like, particularly among, you know, my, my generation, you know, millennials in particular, and there's this real longing for, you know, uh, I've seen a lot of people say that they want to buy property and create a, a tiny house, you know, compound so that mm-hmm. they and all their, you know, whether they're poly or not, but the joke is always like, you know, being the whole polycule are going to move up to the farm together. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's obviously a romantic vision, but I think it speaks to a real longing to, like, get back in balance with, with our ecology and with the social systems that, um, you know, are, are part of that, right? Absolutely. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks at sumatisparks.com. And we're speaking with Brett Chamberlain, the executive director of a new organization called OPEN, which stands for Organization for Polyamory and Ethical Non-Monogamy. And Brett has a lot of experience with organizing and um, community building. So if you want to ask Brett any questions, please feel free to call in. The number is 657-383-1132. You won't interrupt us. We'll just put you on hold and and get to your call at the right time. So again, that number is 657-383-1132. And we were just talking about community. Um, Yeah, so many times I've heard people like have that, express that longing for community. And it often bumps up against like that we have to work, you know, capitalism. Like, mm-hmm. How would we go live in the country if we have to hold this job in the city? And what are we going to do for work when we're out there? And can we find some nice land that we all agree upon? And especially if you live in California, land is so expensive. I do have a, 
group of friends in, in the new culture community that bought some land on the big island in Hawaii over on the wet side. And it's pretty high elevation in the rainforest, so it's really rainy, um, which is, isn't so great because, you know, you're in Hawaii, but it's raining all the time. But what's so great about it is they can do their own rainwater catchment and, you know, don't, don't have to rely on, on water. They have water, as much water as they need. Everything grows like crazy there. So they grow most of their own food. Um, and then they have uh, solar power as well. So, um, you know, there's pros and cons to it, but um, that's the challenge is finding a place where everybody wants to live. I wouldn't want to live there. I love all the people that live there, but I wouldn't want to live in that much rain. Um, and then if I go to like the drier side of the Hawaiian islands, the real estate is just exorbitant. <laughs> so, you know, that's the challenge is like, how do we do it? You know, any thoughts about that? Well, you know, Sumitu, what's coming up for me is something that I think is really important in these conversations, and that is privilege. Um, mm-hmm. So as a starting point, non-monogamy is, is not inherently like a, a white person's practice or like for rich people. There have been academic studies that have found that predisposition and engagement in non-monogamy does, does not significantly vary across um, age groups, uh, gender. I'm sorry, it does vary across age groups, but not across uh, other demographics, education level, gender um, racial identity Race. and so on. Right. Uh, you right. really only see sort of changes uh, among uh, the generations where younger generations are more inclined towards non-monogamy uh, and among queer folks who tend to be more, more engaged in non-monogamy. Right. Um, how, so, I, so I say this to set that like, you know, generally everyone is sort of equally predisposed, but non-monogamy is often in its expression, like it can be a very privileged practice because like if you are a homeowner and have a home like large enough to have, you know, all of your, your folks over, or like mm-hmm. aren't needing to work two two jobs to make ends meet. Like you've got mm-hmm. time to pursue relationships, or like certainly to buy property in like a colonized territory like Hawaii. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't mean to sound like critical whatsoever. Uh, <laughs> right. However, I think like that is that is a part of the experience that's worth naming. So I just want to like note that that is something like really important as we do this work to be super conscious of the way mm-hmm. that folks, you know, other marginalized identities that they may hold interact with the experience of non-monogamy. And it's something that as we organize in the space, we need to be really conscious that we are creating, you know, diverse and inclusive and accessible spaces that everyone can be part of that project, part of the social mm-hmm. transformation that we're talking about. And mm-hmm. that we're not just like organizing for and among folks that already hold privileged identities. Mm-hmm. Thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. Yes. And so we need to build community in locations where, that are accessible for people of all different income levels and ability levels too. We have to, Remember that not everybody can drive, not everybody can um, go long distances to get to a party. So it's important to remember to make our events accessible to everyone, at least some of the events. Um, So thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. Um, But yeah, it's, uh, I've met somebody who's fundraising for um, his business where he's created this app that, um, there's an app for that. He's creating this app where um, if you want to build a community, it gives you like all the steps in that. Um, it's kind of mind-boggling, but you know, you just follow this app and it, it tells you all the things. But it's gonna have the funding will be there because it, it's gonna be um, fund. The initial communities will be funded, and then each each one will raise money for the next or something like that. So I like that idea because that's usually the issue is is money. It often comes down to that. 
Mm-hmm. Yep, that's so often the case. I'm really excited to see what we continue to do in the, the digital organizing space because, you know, obviously uh, in-person relationships are critically important and ensuring that, you know, our, our systems are, are ecologically grounded. But at the same time, like it is a digital world, the growth and the accessibility of the Internet is, I would think, one of the things that has really contributed to the growth, the growing prevalence of non-monomy because given folks access to these conversations and these vocabularies and these communities. But unfortunately, so much of our uh, current internet and the main platforms that dominate it, particularly the social networks, are obviously driven by their financial incentives and their obligations Mm -hmm. to their shareholders. Mm -hmm. And often that means keeping people's eyeballs on the page as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And therefore, that means serving them the most addictive content Mm -hmm. uh, that you can to keep them engaged. And too often, as we now know, know, outrage is one of the most salient human emotions so so often mm-hmm. it's you know the outraging content um that that comes up to the top so i'm certainly excited to see like what we will continue to see in the digital sphere uh, in terms of platforms that are really authentically organized around facilitating human connection as mm-hmm. opposed to just making money for facebook shareholders right and the people that spend so much time on social media younger people who haven't really even started having many relationships yet because they're just doing everything digitally. Um, that really scares me. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to more human opportunities for relationships uh, in person. Um, so tell me more about how people can um, use your organization to help with what you're doing. What, what are some of the ways people can help out and be involved in this? So the best way to stay up to date on our work is to join our email list, which you can do from the homepage of our website, which is www.open-love.org. That's a hyphen there in the middle, not the word dash, but open-love.org. Sign up for our email list, stay up to date on what we're doing. Great place to jump in is to to sign the Facebook petition. We're trying to get up to 10,000 petition signatures before we deliver it to Facebook with an at-person petition delivery. Uh, so if folks would like to add their name there, they can also go ahead and share it with the communities that they're a part of, and that'll just help us bring more folks on board. Um, but then also, I really am excited to hear from folks in the space. You know, as I said at the top, like, I recognize I'm, I'm relatively new as an organizer in this particular issue area, although I've been doing organizing for, for a good long while. Um, and so I'm really inviting folks' input. So if you would like to share your thinking around what this movement needs and how a group like Open can serve you, um, please drop me a line. Um, Open's main inbox is inbox at open-love.org. I'd love to hear from you. And then finally, a place you can connect with us, of course, on social media, um, you know, asterisk, obviously, everything I just said about social media aside, uh, we are there. Um, mm-hmm. So you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our handle is openloveorg. Um, mm-hmm. no, no dashes, no spaces, openloveorg on all of those okay. platforms. Okay, cool. So right now it's the Facebook campaign. Um, get lots of signatures on that. And um, if we can make a, a dent in that, that would be huge, huh? Exactly. Yeah. So the Facebook campaign is, is our main focus right now, but we are building towards uh, building up our political strategy. So ultimately advancing anti-discrimination protections um, so that folks are free from the, the risk of being discriminated against in housing and employment and custody battles on the basis of their private relationships is our next objective. So um, really excited to be working with a couple of other organizations to advance both legislation um, that, that expands protections, um, but also working with employees at some companies that are organizing internally um, to advance uh, anti-discrimination, hiring and employment. There's a couple of different avenues to that. So 
get onto our email list, and as we roll those programs out, really be excited to invite folks to, to contribute to that change. Yeah, I could see that would be really important because so many people are afraid of losing their jobs or losing custody of their children if someone finds out that they're non-monogamous, and that's just a shame because it's just, especially if you're parenting, it's just so much better for the children to have more adults around. It's just so counterintuitive to think that that would be bad for adults. It's just those old moral, you know, old morality that we've grown out of, but so many people are still stuck in that. So I hope that we slowly turn that ship around. Yeah, when I was in um, Hawaii, I noticed that there were two people I met who were closeted about being polyamorous in Hawaii, but then when they were on the mainland, they were out because there's kind of like a more conservative sexual vibe there, and it's a smaller community, so they didn't feel like they could be out there. But then when they're on the mainland, they could be out. So that was kind of weird and sad. Um, so I'd like to be able to erase that and just have it be, you know, part of of our community has people of all different colors. So let's hope that we can yep. change that. Yeah, um, yeah well, it, it happens slowly. And then, no, go ahead, Brett. I was just going to say, you know, it, it happens slowly and then it happens faster. Right? There's a concept called pluralistic ignorance, which is that if you're, if you're part of a minority group, particularly one that doesn't have as much visibility and representation, people tend to think that there are less people like them than, than there actually are, right? Which is why I think that many people think that non-monogamy is, is a less common, less prevalent than, than it actually is. Mm-hmm. But research has shown 4 to 5% of U.S. adults are actively practicing some form of ethical non-monogamy. And mm-hmm. one in five people will, at some point in their life, be part of a non-monogamous, a consensually non-monogamous relationship. Well, so, you know, I think as, as more people, you know, slowly start to open up about their identities um, and even take pride in the relationships that they hold, I think more and more people will feel more comfortable, you know, opening up and sharing their identities. And then it sort of creates a snowball effect where we really just start mm-hmm. to see just how large and how diverse and, and how beautiful this, this space really is. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, it's so great to talk with you about all this, Brett. And are you going to Burning Man this year for the Orgy Dome? <laughs> I am, yeah. We've um, really excited uh, the Orgy Dome. You know, obviously, it's, it's something that people have heard of the Orgy Dome, often if they're not even familiar with Burning Man. And obviously, it's a little titillating. It's a space for social sex. So if that's not part of your, your lifestyle, um, obviously, that's new and novel for folks. But really, it's an opportunity for us to provide a really robust consent education talk to the tens right. of thousands of people that visit the Dome each year. And mm-hmm. folks come to Burning Man from all around the world, many from, from cultures or from communities that don't have the type of um, you know, consent focus that is a little more prevalent, I think, like in the Bay Area sex culture, for example. So it's right. a really, really exciting venue for us to advance um, a, a better understanding of consent and provide people with access to social sexuality in a, a, space, a safe and monitored space. So really, really excited to bring that gift back to Playa this year. I love it. I was just talking to a client today about um, her, she's married, and then her lover is from another country, and he just recently got out of another relationship, so he's kind of single and on the loose, and, and we were talking about how he is not going to just sit down with his new lovers and have a consent conversation. <laughs> he's just so far from that, and she's going to have to start using condoms with him because she can't trust that he even knows how to do that, to like, you know, f- Sit, like stop the energy and say, okay, let's have a talk now. You know, it, that's, that's such a foreign thing for people, you know, 
So I love that you are normalizing that as well at the Orgy Dome. It's so great. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I remember if I was taught consent at all, you know, as a young person in high school or college, it was always no means no, which is woefully insufficient because mm-hmm. that means as long as the person doesn't say no, you assume you're good to proceed. Right. And instead <laughs> what we need to be promoting is, you know, anything short of a fuck yes is a no. Um, and, you know, talking a little bit more robust, like providing an actual robust content education to young people mm-hmm. I think will be you know, instrumental and like a key to the sort of social transformation that we've been talking about. Absolutely. So a wonderful work that you're doing, Brett. Thank you so much for what you're offering to the planet right now. It's much needed. Um, so tell us one more time how to reach you, your email and your social media. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'd love for folks to get in touch. I'd love to hear from you at uh, info at, I'm sorry, I believe earlier I said inbox at. The correct email is info at open-love.org. That, of course, is our website as well, open love And then we are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as openloveorg. And then folks can also connect with me personally. I'm on uh, Twitter and Instagram at 99Brett, 99B-R-E-T-T. I'd love to hear from you. Fabulous. Okay, well, thanks again, Brett, and I will see you on the campus. <laughs> Thank you, Sumati. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Okay, if you're still with us, I just want to let you know about our next show. Um, we've been moving to um, twice a month now instead of weekly. So um, my next guest will be July 26th. Her name is Trish Wright, and I ran into her, her at a wonderful uh, festival in California Uh, earlier this month called Soul Play, and she is a love coach, and she's from, I believe it's called the Love Academy, so I'm really looking forward to getting to know her and bringing more love into the world, so please join us on the 26th for our next show, and thanks for being here tonight. Good night, everyone.